Hello, hello, and welcome to my tennis journey. I really am super excited about today's guest. I'm super excited because I feel over the past seven or eight years, maybe longer, that our guest has been my coach. He's been my coach in Derbyshire in England, even though he is based in a tennis centre in Milwaukee in America, where he's also a coach to tennis players all around the world. That's because our guest has successfully brought the world of tennis and tech together. Indeed, I think I'm right in saying that he launched the first ever tennis podcast in 2008, and the compelling coaching content he produces has seen his YouTube channel grow to over 240,000 subscribers. As any kids will tell you, that's a lot of subscribers. So an incredibly warm welcome to founder and head coach of Essential Tennis, Mr. Ian Westerman. Hey, Rod, thank you so much. Appreciate the invitation to come on. Looking forward to our conversation very much. And what you just said really is what it's all about for me, hearing that somebody I've never met before across on the other side of the world uh, considers me to be their coach. It's really just kind of a magical you know, thing for me. It's amazing that technology allows that to be possible. And it's more, more or less the dream that I had starting off. So really grateful to, uh, to hear that. Thank you. Brilliant. And, and it is, isn't it? It's tech enabled. It's, it is the power of technology that, that in the past was only in the hands of the broadcasters, but is now mm -hmm. in the hands of the people. And when it's used well, it can do amazing things. Yeah. Yeah. No question. Yeah. When, yeah. When I started, it was a very uh, new, uh, uncharted, you know, territory and uh, the world of uh, new media, as it was called uh, then. And uh, I'm really grateful that I, I started when I did, because it's it's given me a lot of opportunities to most importantly for me, just make a it sounds cliche, but just make a much bigger difference than whatever ever would have been possible. If I was on a tennis court, you know, all day, every day, maybe by the end of my 30, 40 year career, I would impact a couple thousand people personally. And we do that. That's a normal, you know, that's every day now. So I'm, I'm super uh, thrilled about that. So thank you for inviting me on. I appreciate it. Brilliant. I can't wait to talk about essential tennis, but we must go back to the beginning. It is my tennis journey after all. How did your tennis journey begin, Ian? Oh, wow. Well, I started off when I was about nine or, or 10 or so. Uh, some family friends of ours played tennis. Nobody in my family was athletic at all. I'm, I'm the first Westerman to receive a high school letter for a sport and not like band. So uh, that may be my biggest accomplishment in my, my tennis career is just uh, pursuing something athletic and actually being, you know, reasonably successful at it. I'm, I'm proud of that. That's <laughs> uh, so, yeah. so, you know, so many people, you know, if you look at the likes of an Andy Murray, he's from a tennis family. Rafa, you know, they, they come from, they've got tennis backgrounds. Who got you to pick up that racket, Ian? Who, you know, who introduced you to the sport that's made such a massive difference to your life? Yeah, I, I remember a friend, a family friend, Jackie, who played tennis. I remember it's probably my earliest tennis memory is is her inviting me out to play. And I don't remember why or like maybe she was probably babysitting me, you know, when I was not my parents were probably busy. And that was probably like a suggested activity, something that she liked to do. That's my my earliest uh, memory playing tennis. 
And then when I was 10, we moved to a neighborhood a block away from a park and that park had public tennis courts. And that's when I've, I first started making it like a routine thing for myself. And I would walk over there with neighborhood kids or with my, my oldest uh, brother, who's three years younger than me. And I remember also setting up a driveway tennis with like a rope or chalk uh, line and using the squares in the driveway to, to set up like a court to, to rally back and forth, uh, mini tennis style, basically. So those are my earliest memories. And when I was tw 12 or 13, maybe 13 or 14, I did a summer like rec program at a local high school. And that was my first exposure to actual instruction or like coach, something organized where, where there was an actually like the, the idea was to develop or get better. And so uh, that's, I think, when I really started to take it uh, more seriously and, and things progressed from there. Well, first of all, hey, well done, Jackie. Well done, Jackie, for getting me to pick up that <laughs> tennis racket. Um, and, and, and so at what point did you then start playing tournaments? Was it, you know, I mean, kids these, these days, by the age of 10, can have played 100 tournaments or more. When were you first playing tournaments? Yeah, well... First of all, I'd say I very much underperformed as a, as a junior player. I, I played very few tournaments. Uh, the first one I remember playing was at that high school where I did the summer rec uh, program. And there was just like an end of the summer, you know, kind of tournament for all the kids, you know, that we could enter if we wanted to. And I remember feeling uh, that was my first loss that I remember. Um, and I was probably probably 13 or so. And I remember the kid that beat me and I was just like crushed for whatever reason. Um, you know, that's been along my journey. One of the biggest uh, life lessons I've had to learn is, is how to lose. And so that first loss was, was devastating to me, even though I had no reason to be uh, upset. You know, there was no big expectation on me, um, although internally, apparently there was. Um, and uh Someday I'm sure I'll talk to my therapist about that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I remember the, the kid I lost to telling me, oh, I take lessons at a club. I never knew there was, I, at that, to that point, I didn't know there was such thing as a tennis club, yeah. but it sounded like a magical place. And certainly this kid had some, some uh, unobtainable advantage, uh, advantage that there's no way I could overcome just by the fact that he was a member at this club that, that obviously he's learning, you know, uh, lessons that I couldn't possibly uh, achieve up until that point. And so that, I remember telling my parents on the way home, like, I need to find, like, we need to find a tennis club and I'm going to go start taking lessons there because I couldn't handle the fact that I lost to this person. You know, my, Ian, my friend Cammy, uh, who's another tennis parent, because I'm a tennis parent, you know, as well as coaching. And he sent me a quote earlier, which was winning is winning, losing is learning. And I know it's I know it. I know it. But it's not like that when it's reality of losing, is it? For sure. Yeah. And it, it, it took me, I would say, I mean, I'm still I'm still learning that lesson. But it wasn't until probably 10 years ago uh, when I was, you know, late 20s, early 30s that I think I really actually started to uh, develop as a person to the point where as a competitor, I could handle that, that sort of uh, experience. So it's been a long, it's been a long process. So you got fired up though, Ian, you're thinking that lad, he's playing in a club. I need to get to that club. Is that when it really stepped up? Because I know you went on to play at university. Is that the point that you found that club? 
Yeah, that was a, a big part because uh, when I found that club, and actually that club is is here. Um, really? This uh, this club is no longer a tennis club, uh, and I, I apologize in advance for any noise you might uh, hear in the background. But um, most of this building now is uh, storage for uh, kind of individual storage like containers, and um, this is where I started taking lessons like actual like what I would call like you know real like uh, tutelage or uh, receiving like mentorship from from a private coach and the the person who taught me lessons on literally on on this court was definitely the biggest impact on me in terms of tennis uh, becoming my career Um, I really he demonstrated to me what it was like to love what you did every day uh, to have a passion for um, your career. And um, that combined with the love I already had of the game of tennis was really what set the uh, the spark in my head of like, wow, like if I could figure out, like, I don't, I don't care. Like I've, I'm like successful or um, uh, achieve anything great. If I could just figure out how to make a living and be on a tennis court every day like that to me as like a 15 16 year old was like the ultimate dream and so uh, that's where i set my sights on in high school um and that's when i started taking things seriously is when i started receiving uh, personal instruction here on this court love it love it just makes me smile the passion that i see in the videos it just shines through and it was that chap it was that man who got it going so did did you go to Ferris State University. I know you played for Ferris State University in Michigan, um, but you also studied tennis management. So that passion that you developed as a 16-year-old, you knew it was something you wanted to make your life. You studied it. You played for the university. It must have been an amazing time. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I I visited Ferris when I was uh, uh, either a sophomore or a junior in high school. And yeah, I remember very clearly uh, being inside the racket facility and watching the men's team train and practice. Uh, they just happened to be in a training session when I was going to visit and walking into the building for the first time. And the level of the tennis that they were playing, like the intensity, the camaraderie, uh, and then talking to the administrative staff there at the program and seeing a, a binder, you know, six inches uh, thick full of like internship connections. I, I could basically choose to go work at any club I wanted in the, in the country. Crazy. And yeah, it was, it was like, it was like, it was like a dream that uh, this place existed. The only place that wasn't dreamlike was the location yeah, being in the, the middle of Michigan, uh, similar here to Milwaukee, like the climate wasn't great, but that pushed me even more. So I think to just hang out at the racket facility, spend all my time there. Uh, eventually make, I walked on the team my second year, uh, there at Ferris and yeah, they were instrumental. I mean, this is, uh, 2000, uh, 2001. So new media, you know, didn't exist yet. Uh, YouTube literally hadn't been invented yet. So as far as I was concerned at that point in time, I was on the narrow path to be a full-time, you know, career long on courts teaching professional. That was, you know, I didn't want anything else out of life, uh, except for that. And so Ferris was was super instrumental in giving me the, I don't want to say shortcut, but giving me the precise steps to follow to actually get on that path and uh, get to the highest place as quickly as possible, thanks to the connections that they had in the industry. 
Brilliant. So what happened, Ian? You know, what happened? How did the incredibly exciting chapter that is Essential Tennis, um, how did that begin? And for British tennis fans out there who haven't heard of Essential Tennis, can you, you tell us how you would describe it from, from how, you know, how it started and, and how you would describe it now? Um, yeah, that's actually kind of a difficult question. Yeah, I would say it's a, it's a digital content platform for amateur tennis players that have a passion for improving at the game of tennis. And my goal from the beginning was to provide resources in written format and audio format and video format that help players reach their goals, whether it's technical, mental, fitness, strategy, you know, whatever facet of the game people wanted to learn about. It was my, my goal to, was to provide resources in whatever medium people learned best and wanted to uh, connect with my, with my instruction, just make it available. And the and, thing I love, I think, is that it is incredible information. It's so useful. It's um, educational. But it's also incredibly entertaining. You know, it's it's fun. You guys take the fun onto the tennis court, huh? Yeah, and that's I mean that's something I've worked on over the years. I'm not a I'm not a naturally fun person. Uh, hey, I can't so believe that. Over the uh, I I would honestly I would credit very much my um, the other coaches that I've worked with over the years. Uh, first. First Ira and then Kirby and then Kevin and then Megan, depending on how long you've been following my content yeah, for, yeah. for the last six years, I, I've had a variety of different coaches uh, join me and be full-time team members here at Essential Tennis. And I think through those collaborative uh, relationships with the universal um, or the shared experience of like creating content, that's really, I think, where I've learned how to if you go back 10 years ago and look at my early videos, there was no fun being had. <laughs> you know, so I, I've, I went I've back and I looked, other coaches. The, I looked at the first one. It was really good. I looked at your first YouTube video. It was um, a serving analysis of Sampras. Sampras uh, yeah, yeah. It was good, man. I mean, I was doing that for research to try and, you know, think what questions I could come up with. I ended up watching that. I was like, oh, oh, <laughs> even back then I was learning. Awesome. Well, I recorded that video in the driver's seat of my car uh, when it was parked in the, the parking lot of a sandwich shop in Bethesda, Maryland, uh, outside of D.C. Um, it was about a mile away from the club where I was teaching at, at the time, full time. And I very much didn't feel comfortable doing my private you know, work like on premises where I was yeah. you know, earning a living and uh, getting my paycheck to, uh, to pay the bills. So for, uh, for three and a half years, I created content uh, either in a spare bedroom or uh, in my car, uh, wherever, you know, I could get a couple of free minutes, um, I would record stuff. So I actually, I very clearly remember, I can, I can close my eyes and be back in that, in that same position and that I, like I remember the spot in the parking lot where I was parked. Um, because that was a big moment for me to, to consciously just make the decision. I'm going to create something now. I'm going to try to make it valuable and then I'm going to publish it, you know, publicly for anybody to watch. Um, that's really what excited me the most from the beginning. And I get to do that every day now, which is fantastic. Yeah. Isn't it just, isn't it just, and, and did it, I mean, when, what year did essential tennis start? 
And how long were you grafting before it really started working, grafting, I don't know if you have that word over there, grafting, re working really hard uh, before it started to take off? Yeah, that video was recorded in 2009. I, I started publishing a, uh, my audio podcast and a blog, a written blog in 2008. So uh, February 2008 is when I, I started the, the audio and the written content. Video in 2008 was, was significantly challenging uh, cost-wise, technology-wise. Uh, YouTube, thankfully, was starting to become somewhat, you know, mainstream. Mm. And so um, it wasn't until 2009 that uh, I, d I discovered uh, screen capture, you know, technology. Yeah. And that's what I used to create that. F my first probably years worth of videos was uh, just opening clips on my desktop and, and using a microphone and talking and doing a, a stroke or strategy analysis. Um, but it was um, from 2008 until 2011 that... I, it was a, a side hustle and um, the, the hardest part was just figuring out how to monetize. And uh, I tried a lot of different things, but ultimately it was the, the offering a paid online, you know, program of some kind that ended up being the most uh, viable. And so in uh, March of 2011, I, I released the second version of doubles domination. And that was the, um, the program launch that allowed me to quit my job so uh, this april it'll be it'll be 10 years it's amazing because at that point there was so much debate certainly over here how can people make money off the internet and yet people were learning doubles domination and more than happy to pay for it which is is amazing well i think there's still a lot of debate um yeah. now thankfully enough people have done it that it's no longer a question of if, if it's possible I think the debate more so now is like the, like what process is most viable? Is it, uh, is it subscription? Is it uh, like a Patreon uh, type model? Is it sponsorship? Is it sponsored content? Um, is it advertising? Like what, you know, what's the, the path forward? And unfortunately, a lot of people get frozen by that. And um, you just kind of have to try everything and see what works best, you know, for your message and for your audience that, that's following you. But honestly, a lot of people get hung up, hung up on that before they even have an audience. Mm -hmm. And that's the most difficult part. And so, yeah, it took me several years of just putting out free stuff before selling anything was viable option because there just wasn't enough people, you know, following yet. That, that's the hard part. It still is. It's, it's even more difficult now than it was 10 years ago. And, and now, you know, in terms of the, the audience, you know, YouTube is massive for essential tennis 240,000 plus subscribers are just amazing the videos are getting hundreds of thousands of views as a resource you know genuinely it really is phenomenal if you if you're listening to this and you've not looked at essential tennis on youtube please do technique patterns of play psychology strategy it literally has everything and there is an awful lot of free content there you know what really drives you ian to make so much amazing content available well it's i guess if you want to come at it from both ends of this like the the altruistic side and then uh, also the business model side of things um i to me it's it's critical on both ends of the the spec uh, of the spectrum you know in, in terms of just providing value that's just how i sleep best at night is just knowing like my my goal from the beginning has been to offer for free 
content that's more valuable, more insightful, more engaging than whatever the stuff is that everybody else is charging for. And so it's not really uh, um, overtly um, communicated, but that's my essentially my goal every time I create a, a free piece of content. And if I'm able to figure out how to make a living from doing this, then uh, I just feel a certain responsibility to to impact the world of tennis as, as much as I can. And uh, that's happened. That happened, you know, quite a while ago now. And so, a, a big personal goal of mine is just simply to have as much positive impact on on tennis as uh, as I possibly can. So that's kind of on the you know more altruistic side of things. But but I also it, it's convenient that I think it goes hand in hand with the business model too. Especially in 2021, there's. There's literally, even if you take a, a relatively small niche like tennis, there's literally more content being published than can possibly be consumed by any individual. There's there's more than 24 hours of tennis content being published in any given day. Yeah, obviously much more than 24 hours worth. So if if you operate under, a, oh man, I don't want to bug people or be annoying, you know, kind of thesis or mindset, then you just end up being thrust into obscurity by just the fire hose of the avalanche of other options that people have. And so I adopted that mindset very, very early on. And um, I'm grateful that I've had many years to practice um, that mindset of we will publish as many. The the hard part is like balancing quantity and quality. Yeah, Uh, We will publish as many videos at the highest quality possible and uh, thankfully, I have a team, you know, of uh, amazing creative uh, production people around me. Otherwise, it would, it's, you know, it'd be absolutely impossible for me to do it uh, on my own. And they're a big part of how, how I'm able to express, you know, uh, having fun also is uh, continuing to, to, uh, um, to work, you know, hand in hand with them. But anyway, uh, somewhere at the crossroads of quantity and quality is like a, a perfect like balance. And we're always striving to, uh, to hit that. And right now, that means about every other day, we publish a new uh, lesson. I'd love to get to every day. We're actually, I'm interviewing more production people now. Uh, yeah. I don't think I'm satisfied until we're, we're publishing at least a new lesson uh, a day. So we're shooting for that right now. It's prolific. It is absolutely prolific. And it's not just just content for content's sake. The quality is there. Um, but what I love about essential tennis is you're not like just staying with one thing. It's, it's how innovative you are. You know, you started the first tennis podcast in 2008. You were a very early adopter of YouTube. You've got really high tech video analysis. I'm loving the live streaming of matches along with the commentating. Ian, how do you come up with all these ideas? And even more importantly, how do you make them happen? <laughs> I don't know that I can uh, give you good answers to those questions. Um, I, I love making stuff. Um, my, my mom uh, was a professional photographer. Uh, my dad, a, a, a graphic designer. And so uh, I, I grew up in a house in the early 80s with a Macintosh computer and a literal dark room, like in, like in my house and a drafting board and uh, razor blades and rulers and, you know, pencils and everything. So um, 
I've grown and I I also credit a lot of what I do now to my being raised in a homeschool environment where um not not to you know get too much into uh, education it be becomes political very quickly but uh, I've, I was very much uh, raised in an environment where uh, it wasn't just repeating like the correct answer. Like I, I was very much encouraged to create my own answer uh, throughout most of my, my childhood. And so uh, I think I've carried that very much with me into my career, both as a teacher, but, but as, a, as a content creator. And so frankly, I get bored. Like I get... Um, I get bored really quickly and uh, I, I want to do something, I want to do something new. And in particular, I, I'm, I'm also very, very, very competitive. And so uh, if I can find, a, uh, if I can find an overlap in the Venn diagram of, of uh, something I've never tried before and nobody else has ever done on YouTube <laughs> in the, in the tennis space, then I, I pretty much, I basically have to do it. Um, and so that's just kind of, uh, I guess, the nature of, um, of who I am as far as being creative yeah. and yeah. making it happen. I very much credit uh, Tyler and James, my, my two full-time production people right now. Uh, James has been on for six years, Tyler almost three. And uh, it's not easy to program people with that mindset, uh, but they've both done an amazing job. It, when I say that mindset, the mindset of like, we're going to just try something completely different. There's no case study or guarantee that this is going to be a success or anybody is going to like it or that anybody's even going to care, like watch it, but we're just going to put it out there just to find, just to find out, like, let's just, let's just try this. And any creative person, you know, listening right now knows that that's a scary, that's a scary thing is to do something that has no guarantee of success and put it in front of 200,000 people and see if anybody likes it or not. Yeah. And uh, I, I credit James and Tyler very much with with adopting that mentality. And now the three of us are working very closely together to to push the needle uh, forward and and push the envelope as much as possible. And so that's just what that's just what we do. Like that's that's just the the job that we all have, and we all love to do that. And so it's a it's a cultural. It's yeah, a cultural yeah. thing at, at Essential Tennis. I love it. And I think, you know, if I think back to my corporate days and uh, at times the biggest organizations, you know, they move slowly. They're a big cruise liner compared to the speedboat that is Essential Tennis zipping through with another idea, making it happen. Just, just brilliant. Now, ideas wise, Zoe, and I'm guessing they don't come when you're sat at your desk. They come, what, random places? You're just like, another idea. Yeah. Well, first of all, I have to give credit to our, our audience uh, very much. And in the early days, I, I adopted very much like a Dear Abby kind of, of approach where uh, it really wasn't me coming up with the content. I, if you listen to my very early podcast, uh, a big ask of mine was like, please, like, can we please make this like a dialogue? Like, what, what is bothering you right now? Like, how, how can I help you? That's always been kind of at the core of, of the content that I make. And so there's on the question, kudos to you for not asking this question yet. Uh, the, the, the question that I'm asked the most, like not even close, is what are you going to do when you run out of ideas? Is ba basically like the question, but like how have you not run out of ideas? No, you can never because you've got a head full of dreams. You can't run out of ideas. It's not in your being, is it? I don't think you can. 
Well, it's a combination of that and my and my audience. Like once yeah. once there was a common, uh, once there was a common like uh, dream shared between me and like my, my early audience members, it was a very symbiotic you know thing. Like I I needed ideas to talk about and they had problems I needed fixing, and so it, it was a very you know win win uh, kind of relationship, and that's continued over the years. And uh, you know I'm not some kind of you know, tennis content, like savant, like I, I go through dry spells. In fact, uh, you know, I can show you about two weeks ago, I posted uh, to our YouTube channel and to uh, a couple of Facebook groups that we, we have. And I just asked like, what, like, how can I help you right now? I, I haven't done that in about a year or two, but I just kind of hit a little bit of a wall like two weeks ago. And I have a Google doc now with like 150, content ideas and so wow. five years from now when i hit a wall again uh, i'm just going to ask everybody again like how how can i help and it's it's the easiest the easiest part is the ideas because it's not just about like uh my brain like being a idea factory um it's about the the back and forth nature of uh yeah. the internet and the content that we create so frankly i have to credit our our audience uh, yeah. tremendously with keeping the ball rolling and keeping things fresh Am I allowed to make it 151 ideas? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll, open the Google, I'll open the Google Doc right now. <laughs> come on. So now this idea has come forward because I loved watching the live streaming. It was compelling. I'm like, just stop serving so quick on those two serves. Get a higher percentage in, was what I was thinking. Okay. Now, I also watched Goldfinger, the Bond film. I don't know if you've ever watched Goldfinger. I, I'm, I'm familiar, but I, I can't, I don't think I've watched it all the way through. I'll talk you through a specific scene very quickly. So Goldfinger's the baddie and uh, he keeps winning at cards because he's got an earpiece in. It's from the 60s and he's getting instructions from someone who can see his opponent's cards, someone with a pair of binoculars. And it made me think of this idea. It's called Ian on Court. So what I love in your lessons is the guidance that you give to pupils. It's not just technical, it's psychological, it's patterns of play, it's tactical. So I was thinking, you now get these sunglasses, Bose frames, those sorts of things, which have built-in speakers. They've got a mic, they fix to the phone. Could you be on court with the pupil? Could it be Ian on court? Where you're going, you've just double faulted twice in a row. Hey, how about putting one in or slow it down or go wide or that's the idea. Unfortunately, I'm pretty sure that's explicitly against the, the rules of tennis. Uh, coaching is remote <laughs> coaching is not allowed. In fact, I'm pretty sure like your pieces like like this are also uh, during match play are, are are not allowed for that reason. Uh, so that there's not any kind of shenanigans with uh, with a coach that's uh, watching. So unfortunately, no, um, <laughs> there is a, there actually is a product that's very similar. Um, I'm trying to find it right now. Um, it's called neural neuro tennis or neural tennis or something like that. And it's like, it's basically a wristband that gives you commands after each, uh, each swing, you know, like reminders. Um, so there's people <laughs> attempting to, uh, to innovate, uh, in that way. And, you know, who knows, maybe you're familiar with Elon Musk's, uh, <laughs> project also uh neuralink with the yeah, yeah. The, the brain uh, implants like maybe he'll make a tennis version of that he's made it work on the pigs hasn't he i think i might like try it um but not in official competition and see if it can have an impact 
Now well, that's, yeah, that's interesting as a training aid, as an instructional tool. Yeah. And, and like a practice match, I could, I could see that we've done the next thing closest to that, which is you've seen our match content where players are walking up into the corner and like kind of it's confessional cam and like talking, like we've done coaching where each changeover, like coach goes up and talks and talks to the player about what's happening in the match. But we haven't done the the headset yet. That that'll be our next project. If I could save up the pennies, make <laughs> get a pair of them specs, I'll do a little video. I'll send it over. We'll see if it works. Sounds good. Come on now. Um, tech has made it made it happen. But but I think what you've done with essential tennis is just make a really positive contribution to what the game of tennis brings to the community. Um, now, I'm really passionate about tennis in my local area and, and getting a buzzing tennis scene going. What's your advice to young tennis players and their parents in terms of what tennis can bring to their life? That's a, that's a big question. I think tennis correctly has been pinpointed as very much a life skills developing kind of activity for, for kids. I, I think that it was absolutely the case for me. Uh, you're put on a almost literal stage, you know, all alone by yourself against another human who's trying to make you as uncomfortable and unconfident as possible. And I, I think that's such a great allegory for, uh, for the rest of life uh, you know, <laughs> as we go out in, in our, our personal and our professional uh, roles we frequently find ourselves in these isolated, challenging, mentally, emotionally challenging uh, situations. And it, I, I think it goes, uh, it's a parallel. I think it goes in both directions. Uh, tennis can mirror life and, and life can mirror tennis very much. Uh, Vic Braden was an early kind of coaching hero of mine. And uh, he had a kind of a, a quip about how every single day in the whole like world of tennis across thousands or millions of matches, 50% of tennis players lose. Yes. And uh, that might sound like a little bit of a, a pessimistic uh, message to kids, but, but I think learning how to lose, I, I alluded to that very briefly earlier, is such an invaluable life lesson. If, uh, if your response to losing in a micro, a micro loss or a macro loss is is purely uh, emotional and self-centered and you know ego you know focused uh it's very difficult to be successful in uh, in the world and so i think children learning how to take an l as early as possible i have 11 year old uh, almost 11 year old and a seven year old and um that's been a big thing a big focus for me um teaching them how to fail and uh, viewing it as just a natural part of you'd like to get better at X, Y, or Z, you're going to be bad at it at first. You're going to miss a lot or you're going to fall down or you're going to, you're going to miss the ball or whatever it is. Uh, I think that's an invaluable thing for people to learn, humans to learn as early as possible. And I think the, the more we get stuck in like, uh, um, it must be unfair or they must have cheated or uh, or I must have, or, or, it, or it, uh, to uh, let them off the hook and say, oh, I must have done something uh, terrible. I, I had an off day today. I think it's important to be able to internalize and actually digest a loss. Yeah. So um, I know that's not like a super sexy uh, headline no, it's really interesting, uh, message. Ian. It's really interesting. I think it's, um, it's something that as I've been doing these podcasts, more and more is coming out 
you know, learn how to lose because of the life lessons you get through it, because of mm. the, getting resilience, getting back up, going again, persistence, never giving up. These things, because life is a roller coaster. I don't know if Ronan Keaton's a star over there, but he sang a song called Life is a Roller Coaster. And he was right. You get your ups, you get your downs. And tennis teaches you how to deal with that. The earlier you can learn that, surely the better. Absolutely. And then my message to parents, having been around the sport for a long time and in a wide array of different types of clubs and having spent time interacting and um, collaborating with many different types of coaches, it's unbelievably apparent to me that sports parents, I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to like narrow it down to tennis parents. Sports parents can be absolutely awful. Um, they can be so overbearing. They can be so uh, critical. Uh, they can try to live vicariously, you know, through their kids uh, and add so much pressure that is not only not helpful, but just weighs down their their child and i've seen it over and over and over it makes me so sad and um so that would be my message to parents is uh allow your children to have fun uh real <laughs> realize that even if they go to stanford or harvard or uh, whatever your dream you know college is on a full scholarship you probably still would have uh, spent more than whatever the tuition would have been on tennis lessons to get to that point anyway. So just calm down. Like your child's probably not going to go pro because it's, it's one in like a hundred million for that to happen. Uh, and just let them have fun, let them be a child. And it's hard. Like they're under enough pressure as it is socially and, and uh, internally, emotionally, you know, psychologically, they don't need your, uh, judgment on top of it uh, in a nutshell that would be my message to parents this is but this is in terms of coming back to what we've talked about if you buy into tennis teaching you life lessons it's not about being the next Wimbledon champion the next US no. Open champion it's about what it can give to your life and if I've got a mission there's a coach here uh, I guess the equivalent of the guy you mentioned a guy called Keith Reynolds and he talks about the life lessons. And he says he used to put players on a court and invite the parents to watch. And he would let them play for a few games. And he'd say, what did you see? And they'd say, oh, I saw a cracking forehand. I saw he missed his serve too many times. And Keith says, no, what I saw was two people presenting, being brave enough to play in front of an audience. They can perform on a stage, just like you were saying. I saw resilience when things didn't go right. I saw persistence when things didn't go right. This is what our game can bring, is the life skills. Totally agree. Yeah, well said. Brilliant. Um, yeah, unfortunately, parents make it more about, without realizing it, I think make it more about themselves than, than about their children. And uh, that's a really painful uh, thing to watch play out. Yeah, that's a very interesting perspective. Now, thank you so much for your time. And I've just got two questions, which are questions that we ask everyone to, uh, before we go. Um, if you were put in charge of world tennis and you could <laughs> launch one initiative, one initiative or make one change, and it happens across the world from Milwaukee to a little town in, in Derbyshire, what would that initiative be? Wow. That's a, that's, a, that's uh yeah, I feel like I'm not equipped or uh, I'm not, um, not the right person to ask that question. 
Um, but I mean, uh, accessibility is the first thing that, that comes to mind. Um, tennis is a, is a strange sport in that it kind of, it, it hits both ends of the socioeconomic uh, spectrum. Um, on one hand, it has the um, traditional kind of um, stereotype of being the, you know, the all whites country club, you know, yep. golf and tennis kind of uh, flavor to it. And it's like an exclusive, you have to have a lot of money. And there's, I've been at those clubs, like that's a, it's a real thing. Yep. And it's, a, it's to a certain degree a shame that tennis kind of has that, that stigma. Uh, attached to it but I've also you know where you know I grew up in a lower you know middle income uh, family and in local public parks you know close to where I grew up there was also just public courts that I you could just walk out onto you know can of balls you know cost three dollars and you can get a uh, aluminum tennis racket at, at Walmart for 20 bucks and you can play you can play tennis for the rest of the year with with that uh, investment and so, yeah, I, I guess uh, if I were to be able to make any kind of universal change, it would be to um, even more so focus on uh, universal access for, for players, especially those that don't have the, you know, the funds to be able to, to approach tennis in a more tra traditional, like, here's how you become successful in tennis. You know, it's the private lessons, it's the club membership, it's the tournaments, it's the traveling. Like that, that puts it outside the reach of so many people. And I think with that uh, viewed through that lens, it probably discourages a lot of, mm. of people from, from ever experiencing it. So yeah, I guess, um, yeah, I would uh, make, I, I would double the number of public, you know, free facilities um, and probably implement some kind of racket and ball uh, sharing or recycling uh, program so that there's just always a rack, you know, rackets and a, and a, and a ball that are waiting uh, to it. be used. Be getting like more that. people playing. Come on, let's yeah. get more people playing from lots of different backgrounds. And I think the really interesting thing, and I was thinking about this earlier, um, I was thinking if I'd never played, but I had a racket and balls, which, you know, I, I could get, I could afford. I was thinking, could I learn to play tennis simply alone from essential tennis videos on YouTube? And I've come to the conclusion I can't. I can put a forehand together based on those starter forehand videos. I can do the lot. So in the past where it's like, it's more accessible than now ever because of the sort of content that, that you're, you and the team are making available, which is amazing. Uh, well, thank you for saying that. That's, that's been my goal from the, from, the, from the start. I think when I first started 13 years ago, that was kind of the question that I had to answer for myself was, uh, I know I can create media but will it actually make a difference? Like, will, will somebody on the other side of the world actually have the ability to, in a tangible way, improve their skills? And I didn't know the answer to that question when I started. And uh, in a sense, you know, every day when I get out of bed, I'm hoping to answer that question in a positive way again and again and again is, is uh, basically my goal. So anytime I hear from somebody that is, it actually happened, it's always kind of a magical thing for me uh, still that, that it is possible. Um, so thank you for, for uh, confirming that. It's the truth. <laughs> it's brilliant. It's the truth. Now, one last question. It's another left field one. I was, um, I nearly went, I went into, nearly went into radio as a presenter and I got asked this question in an interview and I loved it. So I've just asked everyone it, it since we've started the podcast. If you could go for a drink with anybody alive or dead, 
who would it be and why? Um, that's a good question. I'll give a, uh, like a tennis one and then like a, a life, a life okay. one. Um, I, I know personally enough people that have had personal interactions with, with Roger Federer that, uh, it's very difficult in, in sport to combine, um, character and, uh, um, his level of, uh, I'm not sure what other word is the right, uh, just his level of integrity relative to how much success he's had. Yeah. And the stories that I've heard from people that have spent time with him in person. Um, yeah, he, he's in my top, you know, 10. And as far as tennis people, it would, it would definitely be him. Uh, he sounds like an, just an incredible uh, human. So yeah, he's my tennis answer. Uh, in terms of like more macro, you know, um, philosophical, uh, it, would have to, it would have to be Jesus Christ. <laughs> because like, uh, there's no more pivotal, you know, uh, uh, person in human history, in my opinion, where um, depending, uh, the answers to the questions that you could ask him, I think have more impact on uh, life than yeah. possibly any other person who's lived. So he'd be the other person. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be amazing? Great answers, Ian. Really are. And, and I can't thank you enough. Um, I don't know if you've ever been over to the UK, but I know you've got an audience over here. We'd love to see you sometime. I have. I, I had an uncle who lived in uh, Portsmouth. Yeah. And when I was 16, I, I traveled to the UK, actually, and I spent a month with him. And uh, he took me around, showed me all the sites, uh, London and Stonehenge and and all, all over the place. Wow. So uh, I enjoyed it a lot. I haven't been back since, but uh, I'll absolutely be back at some point. I wish I knew when, but but uh, I can't say at the moment. Obviously, nobody, you know, it's hard for anybody to say uh, when they'll be traveling internationally at the moment. That's the truth, isn't it? Well, if you're ever here, we can't wait to see you. Thanks. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for you and the team and everything you've done with Essential Tennis. Just brilliant content. And uh, we'll look forward to really keeping up with it um, and seeing what the new innovations will be. <laughs> I'm excited to see as well. I have no idea what it'll be, but I I'm excited to, uh, to find out. And uh, cheers and, and kudos to you, Rob, for taking the initiative to create your own content and create your own platform, uh, cultivate your own audience. Every time I, I see somebody new, uh, see a video from a new person or hear a podcast from a new person, it, it makes me super, super happy because it's, I'm sure you've heard the expression, uh, rising tide lifts all ships. The, the, the more people that can jump into the digital space, uh, the more normalized and legitima uh, legitimatized the, the whole landscape becomes for, for tennis. And uh, that's been kind of a personal mission of mine is to make it more and more uh, normal to have a camera on the court to, to publish content and uh, whether you're a coach or you just love to play. So anytime I, I find out about a new show uh, like yours, it, it makes me super happy. So, so I know how much, I know how much work it takes. So, uh, so keep it up and, and hopefully it's a huge success success for you. Well, thank you so much. That means a lot. And uh, thank you for your time, which, you know, I just you're really welcome. appreciate. So thank you very much.